Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. Today we'll be discussing items 14 through 17 on our master list of 53 simple do-it-yourself vehicle maintenance checks, which, if done regularly, once every two weeks, are guaranteed by the ADA to extend the life of your car and preserve its resale value. Once every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Tom and Mark, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years. One album at a time. Thomas, how are you doing tonight? I am well. Glad to hear it. Little sans internet recovering from storm, but otherwise uh, things are okay. How are you post-vacation? I'm good. Had a little family reunion, which was always fun to hang out with the nieces and nephews. Nice. Mostly fun hanging out with the brothers as well, but... You do have some pretty cool brothers. They're not bad, but it's not like we, you know, we're super functional close family growing up so there's still issues to be worked on anyway but yeah it was pretty fun cool tonight we are looking at hello nasty that was my nickname in high school the fifth studio album by the beastie boys hello nasty oh i i got it i got the joke mark tom who were the beastie boys the beastie boys were mca aka adam yauk he provided vocals and bass guitar the King Ad Rock, who was also known as Adam Horowitz. He also did vocals and regular guitar. And Mike D, also known as Michael Diamond. No relation to Dustin Diamond. Mike D was also vocals and drums. And if you don't know who's who while they're rapping, you're probably not paying enough attention because they identify themselves plenty. It is rap music after all. They do a lot of self-shoutouts. It's rap music. That's how they do. MCA has the kind of deep, raspy voice. Mike D is kind of a normal tenor. And Ad Rock has the voice that NPR in a 2012 article described as the most memorable with an elastic, screechy whine. <laughs> and on this album, while he's not necessarily the fifth Beatle just yet, Hello Nasty marks the first album that the Beastie Boys worked with Mixmaster Mike who happened to be the only one of the former Beastie DJs to be on stage next to the band in 2012 when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Chuck D and LL Cool J. Hmm. And Hello Nasty would not be the album it is if it were not for his many magnificent contributions that can be heard and felt throughout the entire album. They did lean heavy on Mixmaster Mike. Well, he brought a lot to the table. Why not show it off? Right. The album itself was released July 14th, 1998 on Grand Royal. Grand Royal was a label that the Beastie Boys started themselves in conjunction with Capitol Records after they made the decision to leave Def Jam. Additional bands affiliated with the Grand Royal label were Luscious Jackson, Atari Teenage Riot, Ben Lee, Sean Lennon, At The Drive-In, and Grand Royal, Just For You, even helped Jim Eat World press Bleed American on vinyl. Nice. Do you know where the name Hello Nasty comes from? Yes. Okay. The name Hello Nasty came from the receptionist at the publicity department for Nasty Little Man, who would answer the phone, Hello Nasty. Hello Nasty was produced by the Beastie Boys and Mario Caldato Jr. Mario is also known frequently as Mario C. He engineered their second album, Paul's Boutique and co-produced with the Beastie Boys their next three albums, Check Your Head, Ill Communication, and then, of course, Hello Nasty. The Beastie Boys got pretty big starting in the mid-'80s. It's true. It is. In August of 86, the Beastie Boys played their first headlining gig in L.A. at a club called Power Tools. That whole day for them was a bit of a whirlwind because they had played Oakland earlier that night, flew to L.A., got to the club, met the co-owner, who was also the DJ. It was a gentleman by the name of Matt Dyke. Mm -hmm. Running sound for that show was a gentleman by the name of Bob Forrest, 
who at the time was the singer of a band called Thelonious Monster. And after Thelonious Monster broke up, he put out a really great album, You Come and Go Like a Pop Song, under the moniker The Bicycle Thief. So, the Beastie Boys had just flown into LA, they're meeting new people, they're at the club, and as they're about to go on to perform for the second time that night, as they say, they were bum-rushed by this skinny guy with long hair who introduced himself as Anthony, Uh then went on stage to introduce them and read some spoken word thing. Quote-unquote. They realized later that guy was Anthony Kiedis. The lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yes, who they had actually met playing a show earlier that year. They then played their first song, which they described the sound for that song as being garbage and the bad kind, not the Shirley Manson kind. (laughs) Levels were all over the place. Vocals were too loud. The music was getting distorted. And Bob Forrest, by his own admission, was not a sound man. And he didn't know hip hop. And on the very first beat of the second song, when the 808 kick hits at the start of Hold It Now Hit It, the entire PA blew out. The Beastie Boys, a couple of years ago, wrote a book called The Beastie Boys Book, and we're going to be leaning pretty heavily on it for this episode. So as they tell it in the book, by this point in our careers, we'd played a good batch of shows and had some idea of what they took, both musically and professionally. So when the entire sound system got blown while we played a headlining gig to 1,500-ish paid audience members, did we tap into that reservoir of professionalism and experience to get the problem worked out? No, we most certainly did not. So they bailed and left an angry crowd, which they found out later included members of other L.A. bands like Fishbone and Jane's Addiction. When they tell the story in the book, they point out that that show, unbeknownst to them, had a far greater and lasting impact on them and their future music trajectory than they could have imagined. Because another one of those angry attendees they left behind was a young musician and engineer named Mario Caldado Jr., which is why I'm telling you the story and not just to plug the Bicycle Thief album, which you should go listen to. It's fantastic and I love it. After the Beasties bailed, Mario found Matt, told him his place was a joke and that he had a PA and Matt should hire him to bring his PA in and run sound, so Matt did. He hired him on the spot, and even though the club closed within a year, Matt wanted to move on to producing music anyway, and they kept working together doing that. Mario took his recording gear to Matt's apartment in Hollywood and became his engineer, and together they worked on some jams with the likes of Tone Loke on Wild Thing and Funky Cold Medina, and also Young MC on Bust move those were pretty iconic 80s songs yes they were they were huge now fast forward a couple years from there the bc boys had left f jam and signed with capital and while in la they reconnected with matt dyke he introduced them to mario c like i said mario was engineered their second album which was mostly tracked in matt's apartment slash studio since the beastie boys and mario hit it off he became a fixture for them for at least the next decade And in addition to his work with the Beastie Boys, Mario C. has worked with the Dandy Warhols, John Lee Hooker, Soulfly, Ozmatali, Sue George, Jack Johnson, The Promise Ring, Bjork, and Blur. Other notable entries into his extensive body work includes co-producing Beck's album Odele, as well as the Being John Malkovich soundtrack with Spike Jones. Hey, we both love that movie. As well as mixing the One Day as a Lion EP, which is the only project that Zach De La Roca has done since Rage Against the Machine. Hmm, very cool. It was a good EP. I just wish he would do more. Mario's musical influence spans a wide area of musical genres and he's come a long way from that uh funky comedia days (laughs) haven't we all should we talk about our histories sure i'll go first okay i don't have one because i don't like the beastie boys okay that was it that's all i had all right (laughs) thank you for sharing (laughs) As for my own history, I did realize prepping for this that I had lied on a Nirvana episode. Uh The first two CDs that I bought were the So I Married an Axe Murder soundtrack, but not Ill Communication. It was actually licensed to Ill because I frequently get those two mixed up like an idiot. It was a year or two later that I received Ill Communication as a gift from KRBE with the purchase of a hat from the radio station. I have a pressing question. Okay. Inquiring minds want to know, do you still have this hat? I don't know. It might be in a box somewhere in my storage unit, or it might be gone forever. Well, we can come back to that in a future episode. Good question. 
by the time that Hello Nasty dropped. I have picked up enough other CDs that I have no idea what number it was in my catalog. I do know that I bought it while in Huntsville, Texas for a week during the summer of 98 at the journalism summer camp that was held there every year at Sam Houston State University. There used to be this really great little CD shop that was just barely off campus near the dorms that we would always be put up in. Somebody had converted a house, and I had discovered the shop the first year I went to camp there. And the following years, one of the main things about going back to camp that I looked forward to was always because it meant that I could make trips to that CD shop, which I believe was called the Ear Doctor. Is it still open? It is not. They have closed. Oh, that's sad. It is. I did take the time to look it up to see if it was still there. And thanks to somebody on Reddit posting a few months ago talking about the place, that's where I remembered the name from. Now, if I was a nicer person, I would actually have bothered writing down that Reddit user's name. But I guess I'm just a terrible human being like that. Oh, Mark, that's not why you're a terrible human being. Not giving credit is a very pitchfork thing of me to do. (laughs) There we go. I don't know what else I got that summer, because I'd usually pick up like half a dozen new CDs or so, but I do know... Which is why you had a multi-hundred CD binder in your car at all times. Yes, but I do know that after I got Hello Nasty, then Karen and maybe Sarah Noche and I, along with the very odd roommate that I got stuck with that summer, we hung out in our dorm room and listened to the album. All right, let's jump back to the Beastie Boys. Yes, And since we're talking history, how about more of a extended history of the band? I dig it. But we've got a lot to cover, so we're going to try to keep this as brief as possible. Because this album is long. It is. Which is something else we can talk about, the excitement of the double CDs back in the day. Yeah, but this was a single. This didn't have two discs? This was not a two disc. This was just a single disc. It's got a lot of tracks, but they're all like two and a half minutes. Yeah, I guess it probably only feels like forever if you really don't like the music. Everyone in the band grew up in New York City, and they were not hip-hop guys to begin with. They were all punk kids. They were running wild at shows and in clubs, and they just kind of gravitated towards each other as kindred spirits. In 79, Mike and Adam Yauk were in a band with a guy by the name of John Barry. The band was called the Young Aborigines, and they brought in Kate Schellenbach, who replaced Mike on drums. Ooh, this is probably not the last time we're going to talk about Kate Schellenbach. Or is it? Maybe it is. Kate described the Young Aborigines as a more serious band that was trying to be a mix of public image and Susie and the Banshees. Then after those serious practices, they'd switch instruments and goof around, joking about starting a punk hardcore band. And as would become an ongoing theme for the Beastie Boys in their early years, the joke took over and that project became the main focus. Not just the main focus, but a fairly successful endeavor. As a hardcore band, they were successful enough to play with the Bad Brains, Reagan Youth, Misfits, and Sonic Youth. In a 2007 interview with Charlie Rose Yelk, credit John Barry was with bringing the Beastie Boys name to the band. Beastie being an acronym for Boys Entering Anarchist States Towards Inner Excellence. Although over the years, there's been mixed statements as to whether or not the acronym came before or after the Beastie Boys name was adopted by the group. And yes, like the drummer of Crash and the Boys, the girl in the band was a boy too. (laughs) Until she wasn't. Wasn't in the band, not wasn't a girl. Right. At a point, Adam Horowitz joined the band. At a point, John left. At a point, the focus shifted to rap and hip-hop. At a point, Kate got left behind, and they traded her to work with Rick Rubin. At a point, they went on tour and opened for Madonna and were young, immature, and stupid. (laughs) At a point, they went on tour and opened for Run DMC and were young, immature, and stupid. At a point, they broke up with Rick and left Def Jam and then left New York. At a point, they started a studio in L.A. and a label and a magazine and a fashion brand. And at a point, they started working with Spike Jones and started wearing ridiculous costumes and making amazing low-budget DIY music videos. At a point, they grew up. At a point, they apologized for being young, immature, and stupid. At a point, they learned to use their fame and status to raise awareness and support causes they believed in. At a point, they put out four albums and sold millions of records. And that was all before this, before Hello Nasty. So, despite the fact that they had some young and stupid and immature interactions with Kate Schellenbach. 
she credited the Beastie Boys in a Riot Girl documentary uh, I watched recently with my wife, who was big in the Riot Girl movement in the 90s. And she credited the Beastie Boys and Kurt Cobain as some of the biggest early allies for females in rock and for... Um, and just for a lot of marginalized groups in the late 80s and early 90s, which they hit on some of that in the book, but I find it really interesting just how committed they were to these very serious causes while their music was so sophomoric. Yes. They built these personas of who they were, and that's what people wanted. That's what people were you know, throwing money at them for. You look at some of those old music videos and you have to know they were being they were being absolutely ridiculous and they knew it, but people loved it. Yeah. Kate even has a section in the book that she writes about all this about being hurt, not necessarily that she was out of the band, but that she had lost her friends. And she talks about the first time that she heard License to Ill. She couldn't stop laughing because to her, she got what it originally was of what it was originally was satire. Right. Right. License to Ill was meant as a joke, but it was a joke that then blew out of control and went on to no longer being a joke. Right. It went too big for them to go back. And I don't think people today still understand it. The way it gets played, it's still people take it as a serious, you know, party anthem. And it's not. Absolutely. Uh, I want to pause for just a second and talk about this Beastie Boys book you had me listen to. Okay. I cannot stress to all of you listeners enough. If you're looking for something good, something engaging, some great content, check out this book. If you need something to listen to in the two weeks between this episode and our next episode. It's written by the Beastie Boys. They do have some guest writers in, but just the people they have on the album, they have so many big names narrating the book. They had like... The book came out after Adam Yauch died. He passed away. Yep. And so it's just Adam Horowitz and Michael Diamond. They, did a, they brought in all their friends to read it. Every single celebrity with some connection to New York is in here at some point reading a section of this book. They really are. Ben Stiller... LL Cool J, Amy Poehler does a breakdown of all the music videos. Yep. Steve Buscemi was in it. They had Mm -hmm. Snoop Dogg, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth, Tim Meadows, Wanda Sykes, Jon Stewart, Kate Schellenbach reads her own section. It's just really, it's really worth a listen. And that's coming from somebody who does not like the Beastie Boys. I do not like their music, but the book is so riveting. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I did. It was one that when it dropped, I knew I was going to pick it up. But my buddy Pedro, who I've cited on prior episodes, told me that I needed to listen to the audiobook for all the reasons that you just gave. It was so good. You know, if all bands would do that, it would make our research a whole lot easier for this podcast. It really would. I'm looking at you, Adam Durrett. <laughs> Publish your book in the next two weeks. <laughs> Otherwise, you're leaving it up to us to do a lot of interpretation into the history of Counting Crows. So, the making of Hello Nasty? Yep. Before they wrote a book, they had to make this album so they could write about it in the book. In 1996, while doing his own thing to add to the Tibetan freedom movement, Adam Yauch left L.A., moved back to NYC, even though they had already kind of started the groundwork on their next album in L.A. Despite that, the rest of the band recognized what MCA had already known, that it was time to go home. And in the Beastie Boys book, Ad-Rock tells it like this. We'd moved from L.A. and didn't have our own studio. So we asked around to see if anyone had a space somewhere that we could borrow. And to our rescue came Sean Lennon, one of the most genuinely nice people I know. We were just becoming friends with him. Sean has a practice space that belonged to his dad. And he said we could set up there for a few weeks. Not only was it incredibly nice of him, the space was awesome. A big soundproof room in Soho that we could all walk to and make a ton of noise in the night. Not to mention that there was gear in there that each had a little 70s style red label on it that read John Lennon. It's pretty amazing to think that while I was using a big plastic label maker to make red labels on my bicycle and stuff, so my brother and sister wouldn't steal them, John Lennon was doing the same thing to his stuff. (laughs) A couple pages before that in the book, Ad Rock started the chapter entitled Hello Nasty is Our Best Record with a list of 10 reasons that he believes might prove this claim if you believe otherwise. And number six on the list gives more detail about the process. We'll probably go through all 10 before the episode is done, but we're going to give them to you out of order to meet our needs. So consider yourself warned. Number six on the list, maybe this isn't a reason for you to think Hello Nasty is our best record, but does it help to know that it's my favorite? 
I love all the records we made, but this one is just a little more special to me. It was recorded during some major transitional life moments for the three of us. It started at G-Sun in LA and ended on 12th Street in Manhattan, in the same building as my first ever New York grown-up apartment. Things just felt very full circle-ish. We were back in New York, we were still a family, and we were still an NYC band. We shared a practice space in a sub-sub-basement room on Mott Street. It was the NYC version of G-Sun. Except G-Sun was big and open and had an indoor basketball court. Mott Street was tiny and cramped and had water bugs and a serious mold infestation. It almost felt like a gross practice space in a submarine. It was perfect for me, and I loved it. I would ride my bike across Bleecker Street every day and make music. A lot of the time I'd be by myself, just recording drums or piano or guitar into a tape machine, press record on the tape deck, run back behind the instrument, and scramble to get the headphones on in time to start playing. Adam and Mike would do the same. It was really cool to show up by yourself, to work by yourself, and hear what the other two had done the day or night before by themselves you'd add some little thing to the thing they were working on, or start some new idea for them to listen to and add to. It was a new and exciting way for us to make music. So has he convinced you yet? Um, you know, it doesn't take a lot to convince me what their best album was. They all sound kind of the same. So you're sold. I'm sold. But if you, listener, are not, here's number seven. He says, it's our best record cover artwork. We were stuck on what the cover should be. So we had a show and tell presentation of other record covers. We liked and talked and talked about them. Like, it should be a picture like this. No, what if it was more like that? And then Mario C. blurted out, yo, the cover should be a picture of the three of you guys packed in a sardine can. Of course it should. It was staring us in the face the whole time. We asked Michael Levine, a photographer friend of a friend, to shoot the shot, and he did. It was great. Our friend Bill McMullen and Yao created the inside image, our other world. This was a throwback to when people used to listen to records and stare at the artwork and think about the band being otherworldly. Hello Nasty was where we were headed. Interplanetary and outer space. Uranus. That's not how it's pronounced, and you know it. <laughs> We do have to get this right because your brother who corrects our pronunciation is a rocket scientist. I'm glad that you're sold on the album by now. Like you said, you've never been into them. For me, they were one that I had been into early. And in addition to picking up Hello Nasty at journalism camp the summer it dropped, which was the summer going into our junior year, towards the end of that same year, I was in Austin for a weekend for a statewide high school journalism convention and competition where I happened to win a couple photography awards. But I don't remember any of the seminars or even the award ceremony. But what I do remember is a few of us realized that we were not far from the Tower Records, and we ditched an afternoon lecture, and I came out of it with the Beastie Boys Root Down EP on vinyl. Hello Nasty, like some of the other albums we've covered in prior episodes, was the album that came out during our time in high school. While we were at that age where we'd only recently started to discover good music for ourselves. Yep. However, Beastie Boys were one of the first bands I got into on my own. Unlike some of the others that we've done, there was no older brother that was giving me the Beastie Boys catalog. There was no hip-hop or rap, except for MC Hammer a couple years before, when everybody was listening to Hammer. How could you not? It was too legit. To quit? Mm-hmm. The proper response is, hey, hey. <laughs> so, Licensed to Ill was one of the first CDs I bought for myself, and from there I was able to work through their catalog at my own pace, and by the time I'd pretty much caught up with everything, it was just in time for this album to drop, which was great because, unlike other Beastie Boys fans, I didn't have to wait the six years between Ill Communication and Hello Nasty. I'd been a fan long enough to consider myself a fan, but all of the other albums still felt fresh to me. And even though I was young, the nuanced shift in their sound was noticeable, but it still made sense. Because I knew at this point that they had grown up and this was them finally making their adult Beastie Boys album. <laughs> like, like, like grown up? I'm not saying they're making an adult album. Right. I'm saying that they're making an adult Beastie Boys album because it's still the Beastie Boys after all. Right. Which, in a way, leads us into number, number four. four on MCA's list. It really is a weird record. Not a why be normal fake weird, but it's actually weird for the top 40 pop music medium, especially in the late 90s. Most bands don't let themselves get loose. They stay in their lane. Since The Clash, name another band that sounds like a few different bands all on the same record. 
I can't. Mm-mm. However, did you know that to go along with the release of the album, the Beastie Boys made a half-hour infomercial, and you can find it on YouTube. And it's good? No, it is bad. And not even the good kind of bad. It's bad, bad. I think they aired it two or three times on MTV, and I was never able to make it over to your house to watch it. And I had a buddy who had caught it, and when I asked him about it, he was like, you didn't miss anything. (laughs) But that dedication to the salesmanship of the album, it makes me think of the first thing on Ad-Rock's list. Number one, it has 22 songs on it, the most we ever put on a record. So you really get your money's worth, making it our most financially advantageous product in the marketplace. You may love Erica Badu or the Eagles, but Beastie Boys give you more music for the same price. I cannot argue with that. How can you? You can't. And maybe it was that kind of value that helped the album succeed as well as it did. In its first week, Hello Nasty sold over half a million units. It went number one in the US, the UK, Germany, Australia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, and Sweden. It ranked number two on the charts in Canada and Japan (laughs) and was top 10 in Austria, Switzerland, Ireland, Belgium, Finland, France, and Israel. I got to say, there's a handful of countries in there that I didn't even know had pop music sales charts. I don't know why you don't get your weekly emails from the Belgium top 10, but you know. I'm too busy seeing what's hot in Finland. Hello Nasty was the Beastie Boys' first Grammy. They won it for the Best Alternative Music Album, as well as Best Rap Performance by a Duo or Group for Intergalactic. It was Intergalactic that also won an MTV Video Music Award for Best Hip Hop Video. And at the MTV VMAs, they were also awarded the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award for their contribution to music videos. Do you remember when the VMAs were good? No. Me neither. Number two on Ad-Rock's list also points out that Hello Nasty not only ranked as the 22nd best record of the year in Germany's Music Express and 44 in France's Les Inrocuputables. I don't speak French. Deal with it. But it received a B-plus from Entertainment Weekly magazine and 7 out of 10 from something called Pop Matters. So deal with that. That last bit of attitude was actually Ad-Rock's own voice in there. That first bit of dealing with me not speaking French was my own. I do like how you ripped him off. I didn't even do it on purpose. I just realized that as I finished the quote. Yeah, that's why I made the disclaimer. Nice. I don't know what else we need to say about production, since we have a lot of other ground to cover here. But to deal with the many, many tracks, let's go ahead and jump in and see how far we can get before you need a break. Let me know when you need a break, and we can do a sort of intermission where I can tell my story of catching this tour. How's that sound? Cool. That sounds a lot better than me singing circus music for intermission. I mentioned before, and I know I'm not the only one to ever say that this felt like the Beastie Boys' first quote-unquote adult album. And right out the gate, with Super Disco breaking, you can hear and feel that there is a difference in this album. Like they've achieved a new level with their music, and as the Chicago Sun-Times review of Hello Nasty upon its release put it, mature is a word that just doesn't seem appropriate to describe hip-hop punks the Beastie Boys, even when it's a measure of comparison. At 80, the boys still will be snippy, sarcastic, and stupid. Now, to drive that point home, here in the review, they spell stupid S-T-O-O-P-I-D. But there's no denying that the trio's long-awaited new album, Hello Nasty, is a lot more sophisticated than its record-breaking License to Ill or its last effort, Ill Communication. I know, like you said, that you never got into Beastie Boys. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's like after four albums of constant exploration and innovation and reinvention, they finally stumbled upon the Beastie Boys formula. Kind of like how Tom Petty perfected the Tom Petty sound and seemingly effortlessly put out album after album of perfect Tom Petty sounding jams. Yep. This is the birth of the Beasties sound that would follow on all subsequent albums, with the one exception of the mix-up, which was another bold move for the Beastie Boys. And you could say that they like to make moves. And the move was usually bold. Track two, The Move. This one has one of your favorite lines from the album, right? It does. And I can't necessarily explain why, because there's nothing deep or profound about it. As sometimes pointed out, it's kind of stupid. But there's something to be said 
about how stupid can sometimes be fun. Yo, yo, yo. He, hello. He, hello, yo, hello. That one? <laughs> no, I really enjoy... I don't mean to brag, I don't mean to boast, but I'm intercontinental when I eat French toast. It was the last song where he was talking about eating in Holland, right? Yes. Yeah. Two songs about breakfast. Yeah, with European theme. Which isn't even on any of Ad-Rock's lists, because who doesn't <laughs> love breakfast? Uh, I'm not the biggest breakfast fan. You don't like the BC Boys or breakfast? What do you like? Bacon and sausage are both ridiculously overrated. And then I unfriended you. <laughs> I think I've done quite a bit to merit that action. Anyway, this track as a whole, on the surface, is more of the same, but there's a lot going on with that same in this song. Like the album, it's full of random juxtapositions in the beat and the music samples. For example, at around the one minute mark, the beat shifts to Mixmaster Mike scratching out a nice groove that, just as you start to nod your head to it, drops out for a random few bars of a harpsichord before then picking back up with the drum-driven beat that drives most of the rest of the track. And then at a point, that beat drops out again for the vocals beginning to repeat and fade out in an echoed effect layered over an almost ray gun sounding laser thing. (laughs) And just when you think those have faded enough for the song to finally end, it doesn't, and instead it shifts to a repeat of a sample of a song called El Rey Yo by a Chilean pop group. And as that sample repeats over and over, they then start to add their own drum beat and some record scratches on top of that. And just as that starts to get going, the whole thing scratches out like somebody had bumped the turntable. And then it goes directly into track three. You know, I may not have enjoyed being forced to listen to this album, but I think your description of the move made it well worth it. So you're saying that you were forced to listen to this kind of like you were being controlled by remote by remote control yes which is song number three remote control it was released simultaneously on the same a side next to three mcs and one dj so both songs were somehow the album's fourth single and quoting from the book i made the basic demo of this on a cassette four track recorder at home adam and mike liked it enough that we recorded it as a band it needed lyrics and it was decided that mike would take the lead Now, in the booklet from the Beastie Boys anthology Sounds of Science, Mike D. talked about how he and Horowitz went on what he called a coffee mission while they were working. And as he put it, we started talking about the concept of remote control, how we all want control, but don't want to surrender it. Yet we're being controlled by our worldly desires. Now I had a direction, but kept getting too distracted to finish it. Going back to Ad-Rock's telling of it, the problem was that he had just gotten a cell phone and that he had this new text message feature that he was obsessed with. He wouldn't put his new communication toy down. So me and Adam made Mike sit in a vocal booth with a tape of the song so he could listen to it over and over and write lyrics. We took away his phone and said he couldn't have it back until he was done. When he had emerged from the closet-sized room, he'd written one of my favorite songs of ours. Focus is not Mike's strong point, but when forced, he can be magnificent. As Mike puts it at the end of his telling, sometimes a bit of tough love and the right intention works. I like the lyrics to this one a lot. This song in general, lyrically, is my favorite from the album. Mm-hmm. Just the, the idea behind it all? Yeah, he's talking about what he's facing, like all the craziness going on around him, how easily he's distracted. The context from the book makes it make more sense. This has another one of my favorite lines from the album. Yeah. Like Don King, I've got the crazy hairdo. <laughs> Because even when they're rapping about something serious, they're still not always entirely serious. Right. That's just the kind of songs we get from these men. Hmm. Two. I give you a two. That brings us to song four, Song for the Man. Which is actually one of their more serious songs from the album. Mm-hmm. This is also where the album takes a minor shift. The track is driven more by a keyboard melody than a drum machine, and the vocals are processed and kind of airy and doubled by female vocals. Mm -hmm. A 2016 article entitled The Beastie Boys Feminist Evolution points out, in the Beastie Boys anthology, The Sounds of Science, Adrock described how he wrote Song for the Man after observing how men harass women on the subway. The lyrics, why you gotta be like, you got the right to look her up and down. What makes this world so sick and evil speak for themselves? 
that line repeats at the end. Of, I mean, it's a really short song lyrically. Mm-hmm. It's two stanzas. But I like the other one where he's hitting that home even more. He's like, what makes you feel like you've got whip appeal? Who made you the judge and jury? Ain't you never heard of privacy? In the notes from Sounds of Science mm-hmm. that, that article quotes, Adam goes on to explain further by saying, Sexism is so deeply rooted in our history and society that waking up and stepping outside of it is like I'm watching Night of the Living Dead, part two. I don't know why he specifies part two. <laughs> Listening to the lyrics of this song, one might say that the Beastie Boys fight for your right to party guy is a hypocrite. Well, maybe, but in the screwed up world, all you can hope for is change. And I'd rather be a hypocrite than a zombie forever. Hot dang. So bringing it back to what you were saying earlier about them being kind of ahead of the curve of being allies. Which again, just blows my mind because whenever you ask the vast majority of the world who the Beastie Boys are, right to party is the thing they're going to say. That's still number one on Spotify. Which is just crazy to me. It is. Track five. Just Just a test. I don't have much to say about this one, but I think it has a solid groove to it with a nice funky beat and some more lovely scratching from Mixmaster Mike. Yeah, this one's like he's showing off his scratching. It's legit. And it gets my body moving. Number six, Body Moving, was their second single. This is one that I've always kind of been at odds with. I like the beat and the groove they get into with the verse, but the whole pseudo-exercise gimmick always brings me out of the song, and I think that Reggie did it much better on Boots to the Moon. 100%. But this one contains the line, MCA, where have you been, packed like sardines in the tin, which I think is what Adam was referencing in number seven on his list when talking about the cover art, when he said that it had been staring them in the face. Mike D talked about this for the Science of Sound, explaining this was just some silly fooling around in the studio. Adam had this loop of some ill, funky steel drum groove that I really wanted to rhyme over. I laid down a real rough pass of some freestyle duty rhymes. Then for the chorus, we just played around with some different effects. Eventually, we all rhymed on it. I love that description because there's a handful of other quotes I came across from them. And they always talk about whenever they lay down just scratch vocals, they always refer to it as duty rhymes. Duty rhymes. It's like that Sun-Times article said that even when they're 80, that's who they're going to be. Yep. I can very much relate to that. Yep. So number seven is Intergalactic, which is probably their most popular song. Yes. But probably the most popular moment on this very popular track is the moment where the Beastie Boys sample themselves from their song, The New Style, off of License to Ill, with probably the best-known beat drop in popular music. In an article from Whalebone Magazine's Space Issue, they tell the story of Intergalactic, saying, The electro-funk of Intergalactic had a false start in 1993, according to Horowitz, when it didn't make the cut for ill communication. We had this beat off a Bo Diddley record called Another Dimension, and we made the song all space doo-doo rhymes. There you go again. The the (laughs) doo-doo rhymes. (laughs) Like Carl Sagan, Lieutenant Uhura, Dilithium Crystals, stuff like that. And the break was Intergalactic Planetary Intergalactic. The Cornball Space Song, which Horvitz called just bad stupid and not even good stupid, (laughs) would have been little more than a gimmick, but was revisited a few years later to frame what is essentially a tour down the family tree of old school hip hop with a report card from Cool Modi and one bright moment where MCA's flow is so worthy it could hold Thor's hammer that ends with the boast that his style is so strong it could render you as inert as a pinch on the neck from Mr. Spock. It's a classic, and it still has a Uranus joke. (laughs) This song has so many good band names in the lyrics, not even funny. If you were to start a band, this is the place to look. Like what? I'm the Lumberjack. Ooh. Flintstone Flop. Ooh. Relax your socks. My name was Slop. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you can pick some good band names out of here. I dig it. Uh, The next song. I don't have a clever segue for this one. I don't either, but add Rock's list of why Hello Nasty is their best record. Number eight is also about song number eight. Sneak It Out of the Hospital is your favorite song title ever. (laughs) (laughs) That is the full extent of what Ad Rock writes about it. And it's not a bad title, but it's probably not my favorite. What contenders for favorite song title would you have? 
I'm probably going to go to Reggie for a lot because their song titles are just amazing. Okay. So what do you got? Your Girlfriend Hates Me. Mm-hmm. That's a solid one. My Dad, Happy Chickens. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that they have Your Girlfriends Hate Me followed by Your Boyfriend Hates Me. Yes. I really like Good Night Sky Harbor and Every Time I Fly Out of Phoenix, I listen to that song. Nice. Those are some good contenders right off the cuff that I just sprung on you. I gave myself a little more time to think about this. So I have a short list here, starting with Against Me's Tonight We're Giving It 35%. (laughs) There is, of course, the Modest Mouse song, Talking Shit About a Pretty Sunset. Nice. But I think probably my absolute number one is Belle and Sebastian's Judy is a Dick Slap. (laughs) I don't know what to do with that one, Mark. Neither do I, so I just enjoy it. I like this game. I'll have to think about it some more and come up with some more answers on our next one. Regardless of what you think your favorite song title ever is, he does go on in the next section of the book to talk more about this track, saying, This is one of the few songs of ours where I play the bass and drums. I'm telling you this not because I'm a mediocre bass player or because I can't keep time as drummer, but because this song is special to me. It's one of the ones that I basically made by myself. I knew that Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder would often record a bunch of instruments on their records, so why not me too? Because of my sloppy drumming, the song has a different kind of funky to it than our other instrumentals. Spoiler alert, this is one of my favorite songs on the album, but I've always kind of been a fan of their instrumental songs. And in high school, you may recall that before we had cell phones, I had my own line, and my outgoing message was a 30-second sample from their song Sabrosa, which is another instrumental track off of Ill Communication. I do remember that. Now, question for you. Yes. How annoying did that get? Um, I don't think I left you many messages. If you didn't answer, I think I hung up. <laughs> Couldn't be bothered to sit through it, huh? Uh, I got bored. <laughs> yep your attention span has always been that bad hey i'm all the way to song nine of this and i haven't called for an intermission yet so that's true so i will not be putting any shame in your game anytime soon well done if you were here i would give you a standing ovation would you give me a buck Uh, i will i'll send you a buck for this one mark venmo at mc bus stop my daughter already warns people that i don't actually pay them and she's seven (laughs) a wise wise little girl number nine track nine is number five on horvitz list and it kind of echoes what he said on number four but he goes on hello nasty is more mixtape than record a gift from us to you when you get a sec listen to the songs song for junior song for the man sneaking out the hospital i don't know and body moving Are those songs supposed to be by the same band on the same record? Well, the wonderful people of Sweden would say yes. Because on Wikipedia, it says that Hello Nasty was number one on the fucking Swiss charts. (laughs) And while he doesn't list this track specifically in that mix there, this is the first one that to me stands out as being more of a throwback feel to something like their earlier work, like The Scoop or Professor Booty or Three Minute Rule. That's fair. So it does kind of step away from that new Beastie Boy style and kind of feels like old Beastie Boy style. But that old style throwback does kind of match bleeding into track 10 flow and prose another that has kind of an older feel to it with a nice simple funky groove some light scratching and some heavily processed vocals similar to those that can be found on their songs gratitude mm-hmm. or bodhisattva vow but of course without the background chanting of that one yeah mm. it was all right it was a song i listened to and that does segue us into a weird futuristic science fiction sound that ties it back to Intergalactic. Song number 11 is And Me. And I agree with you here. You say up to this point, it's the weirdest track on the album. Which is saying much because this follows Intergalactic. Mm-hmm. But despite that, there is a simplicity of the lyrics. And it might be one of the actual deeper songs on the album. Mm-hmm. It's an introspective look. Yeah, like the opening is, once again, I'm wrapped up in me. My best friend's my own worst enemy, which I can certainly relate to. Me too. (laughs) It also has lines in here like, my life's run by AT&T. 
which kind of goes back to Mike having to be locked in the vocal booth with his phone taken away to focus. You get some really interesting stuff when it's Mike in the booth by himself, but you also get some really good music when you put three MCs and one DJ together. Yes, three MCs and one DJ. Song 12. In The Sounds of Science, Yauk tells the story. I was hanging out at the Rocksteady reunion one year. When this guy came up to me and introduced himself as Mixmaster Mike. When he left, he handed me his card. I believe it said, World Champion DJ Mixmaster Mike. I have yet to see anyone prove that wrong. <laughs> and to his credit, Mixmaster Mike had won multiple World DJ competitions. So he was, in fact, World Champion DJ Mixmaster Mike. But Yout continues, this cut is straight up live hip hop. One turntable, a mixer, and three mics. All live to tape, no overdub, no punches. Hmm. So if you remember earlier, this was the other of that two-pack of fourth singles from Hello Nasty. Yep. And the video for this one was shot in that sub-sub-basement on Mott Street. And it starts with Mixmaster Mike dressed like a Ghostbuster walking down the street, entering the building, and walking down numerous flights of stairs to get into that submarine damp practice space. But the track from the video varies a bit from the album version found here, mostly just in the breaks where the lyrics cut out to focus on Mixmaster Mike scratching. On the album version, it's mostly cutting together different samples of people talking, but on the video, it's purely a record scratch rhythm. Mm -hmm. And it's that video version rather than the album version here from Hello Nasty that they included on Sounds of Science. Interesting. Very interesting. I really like some of these lyrics. Now we be getting stupid in your area, huh? Causing all kinds of hysteria, hysteria. My beat is sick like malaria, but don't worry, I'll take care of ya. Sweet and sour like a tangerine. Fresh like a box of Krispy Kreme. Another breakfast reference. There is another breakfast reference. <laughs> Apparently they were hungry making this. They were, and into the breakfast foods. But I think my favorite line from this one is, Kenny Rogers Gambler is my gambling theme. Which is a line that's so obvious and stupid, and I had somehow never noticed it until I started listening to it for this review. I've listened to the song hundreds of times, and somehow I've always missed that line. That's funny, man. I think they were really ready for breakfast, though, by the other lyrics in here, like, Mix Master, cut faster. Mix Master, cut, cut, cut faster. In the Beastie Boys book, Amy Poehler does a review of all the Beastie Boys videos. Mm-hmm. And her review for this one says, like you just said, Mixmaster, cut faster. And he does. He does cut faster. <laughs> That's the full extent of her review of that video. He does cut faster. <laughs> when I did see them, Rancid was the opening band for that show. But between their set and the Beastie Boys taking the stage, Mixmaster Mike came out and did a short 20 to 30 minute set of his own scratching and materials, and that was phenomenal. Sounds pretty rad. Would you say when you saw him live that he did, in fact, mix faster? I will say he he was both a mix master and he did indeed cut faster. Good, 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 good. No clever segue for track 13, the grasshopper unit. Keep moving. Track 13 is more of that formulaic Beastie Boy sound. There is an ice breakdown in the middle of this one where the B-Boys vocals drop out and switch briefly to a sample of Alex Bradford singing on his 1972 track, I Gotta Keep Movin', which is where the parentheses portion of this title, Keep Movin', comes from. But his vocals used here are pitch shifted and sped up to match the rhythm of this track. His is a much more drawn-out and powerful, soulful delivery. It's actually a pretty good song. Used here, it's still used to pretty cool effect. And there is a nice Gilligan's Island reference in here. And who doesn't love Gilligan's Island? I am a fan. Sorry, did I kill your segue? Uh, no, I don't really have one. Song for Junior, not much to say here. It's an instrumental song, and it is on this album. I would go so far as to say it's another nice little instrumental medley. Like Junior should be. And that's as much as I had in my notes. I don't know what else to say about it. There's not much to say about this. That was my attempt at a segue. Your segue to I don't know? Yes. I didn't catch that. I guess I don't know either. Track 15. I don't know. 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 This one kind of rides 
that simple, easy groove from Song for Junior, but swaps out the keyboard for an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And again, the vocals are kind of light and airy, and the effect, all in all, it kind of makes me think of both The Kings of Convenience and Erlen Oi's solo and side projects. And I don't know if you've ever listened to them. Nope, I don't know Erlen Oi. Well, he's half of Kings of Convenience, and his side stuff is a lot more of the same. Sometimes with a bit more of kind of like a beat to it. Gotcha. He even has his own album or two of him DJing. Oh, cool. In fact, one of those albums is called DJ Kicks. He had another project called something like The Whitest Boy Alive. I remember that. That's him? I know that album. I bought that album back in the day just because of the title. Yeah, that's that's him. And that one's kind of, you know, like the light guitars and a lot more kind of like undercurrent beat stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was one of those where I was listening to this actually just earlier today, just reviewing my notes. And I had that realization. I was like, I would love to hear him or Kings of Convenience cover this track. But this track features backing vocals from Miho Hattori, who is a Japanese-born musician with many credits as a solo artist and contributions to other bands, mm-hmm. most notably being the original voice of Noodle in the band Gorillaz. No way. That is something I didn't know until reviewing and putting the final touches on my notes for this episode. Nice. It's an interesting piece of trivia, Mark. Yeah. Well done, sir. Huzzah. Thank you. And I still don't know how to transition from that to... The negotiation limerick file? Trek 16. Yalk wrote about this song in The Sounds of Science, saying, I like this song because the rhyme scheme is kind of unique. The words are put together in the structure of limericks, or at least that's what we were trying to do. One day we sat around writing limericks and then putting them together into verses. We put them down over some beats, but the odd cadence never seemed to flow right with the music. We tried a bunch of different loops, but nothing fit. One day Mario said, I've got something I've been working on for a while. Can I try it out? He synced up this track with the vocals on his computer and it really fit well. And in case anyone is wondering, a limerick is a form of verse, usually humorous and frequently rude, which I find completely out of place for a Beastie Boys album. (laughs) It's presented in five lines, predominantly with a strict rhyme scheme of A-A-B-B-A, in which the first, second, and fifth lines rhyme, while the third and fourth lines are shorter and share a different rhyme scheme. Do you ever listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? No. What is that? It's a game show on NPR. They have a lot of NPR humor, but one of the things they do is they do the listener limerick challenge where one of the hosts will do limericks about current events and you have to guess which current event he's talking about based on the limerick. It's a lot of fun. I'll have to check that out. It sounds electrifying. I think you would like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me a lot. They had James Marsden on last week, so it's a good one to listen to. I will have to check that out. It sounds electrifying. Good segue. Electrify is song number 17. Tell us a little bit about Electrify, Mark. From the BC Boys book, the main loop for this song is from the soundtrack to the Broadway smash hit Company. Collecting cheap used records for the purpose of finding samples is like being a five-year-old kid who can buy 50 boxes of Cracker Jacks. You keep opening those and getting a prize every time. I can't tell you how often I'd go home and listen to records I had just purchased at a Salvation Army and cry tears of joy after finding just one glorious bar of music to loop over and over. If you have a friend named Bobby or Rob, the first song on the company soundtrack is the funniest you've ever heard. When you get a sec, you really should give it a listen. Now, earlier today, I did have a sec, and I went and listened to it. And while it wasn't the funniest I've ever heard, that may be because I don't have a friend named Bobby or Rob, but I can see myself singing that first track constantly should I ever get a new friend named Bobby or Rob and it will annoy the living hell out of them and that will in turn make me very happy Uh, I think you would also lose your friend but from the way you sound I can picture this track 18 picture this bringing in another quote from the book this is another song that I played all the instruments on down in the dungeon I'm not telling you that because I'm full of myself I am but that's beside the point what I'm saying is and I know it may sound weird but it took me a really long time to admit to myself that I was a musician making music by myself in the dungeon is what in my mind transferred me from just being a guy in the band to being someone who's confident when writing the word musician next to the word occupation on a piece of paper I was hanging out with my friend Brooke and she showed me this cool portable fender reverb box she would always sing her vocals through no matter where she was gigs studios home demo tapes etc i asked her to write lyrics and sing on this track 
and for lack of a better term, she killed it through her portable reverb box. Picture this really reminds me of a beautiful summer's day looking out of a half-open window at the grimy glory that is New York City. Now, Brooke Williams, who sings on this track, is the same Brooke Williams who provided the female accompanying vocals on the prior track, Song for the Man. Not a whole lot to say about this song. Do you have much? It's nice. It's kind of pretty. It's... It's short. Yep. Track 19 is united in our theme of not segueing well from one song to the other. Unite is another return to that new Hello Nasty default beastie sound. And that's all I've got for this one, because even as much as I love the Beasties, reviewing this many songs is testing my own dedication. Song number 20, Dedication, which is also in Ad Rock's list of why Hello Nasty is their best record. Mark, do you want to tell us why? Number nine, as Ad Rock says, the song Dedication is S-B-I-A, or So Bad It's Awesome. That's why it's on this record. And it is a solid beat. I'll give it that. It also has some nice, weird keyboards going on. But lyrically, it's pretty much them naming random places. Yeah, and I will agree. It is a song, and it is bad. I don't agree with the end of that statement, that it is awesome. I do think that the random, weird self-indulgence of including dedication on the album, if nothing else, serves as a buffer to make the second-to-last track, Dr. Lee, Ph.D., seem less odd and out of place. Not that on its own it would really feel all that out of place. It does have a pretty solid beat that plods along nicely, joined by an organ melody as Lee Scratch Perry sings over everything. So we're moving on to number 21, Dr. Lee, Ph.D., Lee Scratch Perry was, among many things, a composer, a producer, and a singer. He'd produced a couple of the early Bob Marley and Wailers albums, including Soul Rebels. He had built his own studio in Jamaica and produced a lot of the big reggae albums of the era and is considered a pioneer of the dub subgenre. He was known as an innovator in the studio and an early adopter of remixing and studio effects to create new instrumental or vocal versions of existing tracks. He had co-written and produced the original track, Police and Thieves, which was covered by The Clash and led to his working with them to produce their song, Complete Control. All of which contributed to him being a personal hero of all three members of the Beastie Boys. And as Mike D says in the Beastie Boys book, In terms of the way we make records, Lee Scratch Perry was one of our biggest influences for sure. And that's part of a whole section of the book that he wrote called Halloween with Lee Scratch Perry, where Mike tells the story of the song. But since this album is so long, we're not going to tell that story for you. You're going to have to go check out the book for yourself. Listen to it. Indeed. Trusting that again. And we wrap up the album with song 22, where we reach an instant death of the album when the song is done. After all those tracks and all that noise, we finally reached the end. It's weird to me that we end with this, I don't know. It's so happy and upbeat for Beastie Boys, and it's a weird ending for me. Okay. This track has a light melody that uh-huh. starts with a, a xylophone and gets accompanied with a light plucked guitar and goes back to that soft voice singing what is such a happy tune. The song sounds happy, but the tune is not. What? Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's a short one. I think I can just read it real quick. Go for it. So again, you're hearing like happy sounds like the xylophone and the soft voice singing. There's almost a lullaby quality to it. I think that's the way to describe it. And what do you do when your man kills himself? How do you make friends now? And where is my mom? I need to show her that she taught me. And please let me die an instant death. I honestly have no problems with that last line because, I mean, if it's instant versus long, drawn out, painful, I kind of agree here. Instant is the way to go. Yeah. But hey, look at you. I am proud of you that you were able to make it through all 22 songs without needing to take that intermission break. So well done. But now I feel like I've earned hearing you tell about seeing them live. Like I said, this album dropped the summer before junior year. And then they announced that they were going on tour and... To make this tour special and different from other tours they did, they decided to do a tour in the round since they knew that they were going to be playing big arenas to bring themselves and to bring the performance closer rather than just setting up on one end and having people on the other end be half a mile away. 
they decided to set up in the middle on a stage that rotated, which is super cool and ambitious. But they announced the tour and I was broke. Our friend Sarah knows she got tickets pretty much immediately. And then every couple of days at school, she'd be like, hey, did you get your BC Boys tickets yet? <laughs> the closest the tour came to Houston was San Antonio. And the morning of the show, I was kind of bummed. And I went over to my girlfriend's at the time. And her brother, who was about two years older than me, had similar taste in music. And he was also kind of moping around because he didn't have money to go to the show either. My girlfriend had recently started a job. It was like, hey, I can lend you guys money. How much are tickets? So I drove us over to the mall to go to the Ticketmaster that was in the Macy's or the Foley's or whichever department store. And I don't know if they had released a last minute batch of tickets or if they had cut prices or if tickets had just been super affordable and I had never paid attention. But we were able to get tickets super cheap for the general admission floor. That's insane. Yeah, so, of course, we did invite her to come with us, but she politely declined, so we dropped her back off at home and immediately drove to San Antonio. We get there, and we get down on the floor, and I don't know if it was before Rancid went on or during the set change, but at one point, I was kind of just back to the stage looking into the stands, and pretty much right in front of me, there was Sarah sitting in the stands in her seat a few rows back, and we made eye contact. She's like, what are you doing here, and how did you get on the floor? To which I just simply replied, with my ticket, and <laughs> turned around and pushed my way up to the stage. Like I said, Rancid opened, yeah. and it was the first time I had ever experienced a circle pit, Ooh. because... They made sure to introduce us to the concept and make sure at least for one song we did a circle pit and whatever. Was that when they were touring for An Outcome the Wolves? I don't remember because I was there to see the Beastie Boys. Yeah, I get it. I appreciate Rancid's place in punk music and their contributions, but they've never really done it for me. I can see that. So while you may not be a fan of the Beastie Boys or Breakfast, I've never been a huge Rancid fan. That's fair. I still have a couple of Rancid albums up with my CDs. Nice. But like I said earlier, between their set and the Beastie Boys going on, Mixmaster played a, a short set. And then the Beastie Boys went on. And at this point, really the only memory I have from that entire show is when they played Sabotage. Yeah. Of course, everybody's going crazy. And it's insane. And I'm 16 in the middle of this pit and I'm not the smallest guy but I'm not the biggest and there are those points in Sabotage where the beat hits and then all the music kind of drops out yeah. and when it would do that you're in the middle of the pit you're going hard and every light in the place cut out oh jeez so you're in the middle of just jumping around and you're just like kind of frozen like oh crap and then the lights come back on and you keep going and then they cut out again and there's that moment of panic and it was incredible cool and actually, in Sarah's defense, I didn't stay mad at her for teasing me all that long because Monday when I showed back up for school, she had made me a button that read, Sarah and I went to see the Beastie Boys and you didn't. <laughs> and she had a matching one that read similarly, but with my name instead of her name. And I think we both wore those buttons on our backpacks for pretty much the entire year. And last time I went digging through stuff in my storage unit, I discovered that I still have that button today. Nice. I know going into this, you said that you weren't fans of the Beastie Boys or the album. And I appreciate that along the way, you were willing to let Adam's List change your mind about this being their best album. So way to be open. I don't really like, I just don't like the Beastie Boys music. I, I just find their voices just right on me, but I like them as people. And my big takeaway from this is I'm really glad I listened to the book. So um, that and your descriptions of some of these songs made it well worth it. Okay. So we've gone through nine of the 10 things from Adam's list. And I think that to complete the list, number 10 kind of wraps everything up nicely. Hello Nasty is our best record to me, also because it was the end of an era. It was the beginning of a new chapter, sure, but after this, things were different. After this, we were grown-ups. Not as dumb. After this, we get called sir at a coffee shop by some fucking asshole barista shithead that I just wanted a coffee from, and not a whole lengthy situation. But you know what I mean. After this, we kind of knew what we were doing. After this, we started to have kids and actual responsibilities. After this was totally great and new and exciting, but after this was also kind of after this. Shit got real. After this, September 11th happened. Sandy Hook happened. Ferguson happened. 
Orlando happened and Donald Trump happened. Innocence passed at such a mass and rapid rate that after this, there was only looking back at this. It's interesting for us as we're going back and reviewing this music and thinking of these times. They feel so far removed, not just because they were forever ago, but I think they would have felt far removed from us. We were recording this in 2004 or something, just because it was a different lifetime, which is maybe why I like doing this podcast so much. It reminds me of a time that was more innocent and carefree. It's nice to look back and know that we're the same... Amazing human beings. Yeah, let's, let's go with that, because uh, I was going to say cynical assholes. We really are. So, were there three tracks from this that you could tolerate enough to make a top three list for this album? Track three, I think, number three, because of the lyrics, more than anything, of remote control. Okay. Next up is flow and prose, and then just go intergalactic is number one. Okay. Partially because it is one of the Beastie Boys songs that I really like the sound and the music and just the weird sci-fi vibe of it. Now, what are your top three, Mark? So, because Intergalactic is the clear winner of the album, I decided to make things interesting and harder on myself and pick my top three songs from Hello Nasty that are not Intergalactic. So, at track three, because I love the instrumentals, is Sneaking Out the Hospital. Okay. And like you, number two is flowing prose. Nice. It's just got a great... It's the scratching. The lyrics are good. He flows well, but that scratch is just so... It adds a lot. Yeah. I like that one for the flow. As far as for the scratching themselves, my number one is three MCs and one DJ. That's fair. I just didn't like the music as much for that one. I like the rawness of them flowing on it and the simplicity of just that with Mixmaster Mike being Mixmaster Mike and doing his thing. Hey, I was surprised that we agreed on one out of the batch. Yeah, I am too. I'm surprised I was able to come up with three that I could tolerate enough to make a list out of. Well, hopefully you can do better on our next episode. Oh, I will. Next episode, we get to cover some of our favorite Counting Crows. We are doing the double live album, Across a Wire. Visit us at our website once every two weeks where you can get links to all of our social. and Tell us what you think. Let us know what your favorite random Beastie Boys line from this album was. Let us know if you love the B-Boys like me or are crazy like Tom. And feel free to also make fun of Tom for not liking breakfast. It's not that I don't like it, it's just that I think it's, it's not the best and it's overrated. I would much rather eat many things besides breakfast. Like I said, feel free to make fun of Tom. Breakfast for dinner is a highly contentious argument in my house and has been for 20 years. I'd say sucks for you, but that really sounds like it sucks for Christine. She goes to her parents and has pancakes for dinner. Also, pancakes overrated. I'm going to go while we still have people willing to listen to us and not turned off by all of my hot takes. All right. We'll see you all next episode. This has been Once Every Two Weeks. Once Every Two Weeks is sponsored in part by Burrow Baracho Records and possibly the Geek Lounge. Mm-hmm.